This is Constantinople, great conversations in a great city. Are you trying to cultivate wisdom, virtue, and joy in your life and in the lives of those around you? You're in good company. Welcome to Constantinople. I'm your host, Megan Muller. This time, I'm joined by Mr. Nick Dalby. Hello. Ms. Bond Pittman. Hi. And Mr. Jonathan Muller. Hello. Today, we are going to be talking about our uh, great book cycle, the uh, curriculum at the St. Constantine School for middle schoolers. Um, middle school is a time of growth. It is a time <laughs> of... Why are you laughing? Well, it, it's just, so true. <laughs> I was amused at how deeply true your statement is. Yes. Um, middle school is a time of physical growth. It is a time of maturity, uh, hopefully growth. It is a time of emotional growth. Um, and uh, sometimes people talk about middle school like it's a thing merely to be endured, not to be enjoyed in any way. Um, I think uh, today what I'd like us to talk about a little bit is sort of the general approach to middle school, specifically specifically great books education that we take here at St. Constantine. Um, we definitely need to highlight some of the things that we do a little bit differently. Um, I know one hot topic, for example, is some schools, especially classical schools, will say, well, we're going to save um, things that have more to do with rhetoric training for high school because that's the rhetoric stage of life. And so we're not going to let them read Plato until they're in that stage. They're in the logic stage in middle school, which means we shouldn't be letting them read something that's more rhetorically advanced like Plato. Um, that is not how we do things here at St. Constantine. So um, it's handy to have all three of you in the room. Um, all three of you either are currently teaching or have taught great books for middle school at our school. That actually includes myself. I currently teach a seventh grade uh, great books class here at the school. Mr. Moeller uh, wrote all the original book lists for the uh, St. Constantine School middle school uh, program. So I don't think you're currently teaching it, but you... Your fingerprints are all over it. And That's right. Yeah, and and I will say there's still some of the most satisfying and enjoyable curriculum work I've ever done. Um, and I didn't stop teaching junior high because I don't like junior hires. I stopped because I was needed elsewhere. Um, but I loved my time doing Intro to Great Books Junior High and history, for that matter. And I know, so. Nick and Bond, you guys just got out of the throwdown. Do you guys want to tell us a little bit? about what the throwdown is and what occurred? Yeah, so the throwdown um, is sort of what it sounds like. Uh, a bunch of the great books teachers get together once a year and we reassess the curriculum, um, the reading list for great books in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Um, and and the reason it's often called the throwdown is because there can be some some uh, tension about uh, which books we want to add and which books we need to subtract from the reading list um, because it turns out all great books are great uh, and <laughs> choosing which ones not to put on the list, it feels like you're saying, well, that book's not great enough to be on this great books list. Um, and everyone has opinions about that. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so we just we just had our throwdown. Everyone came out um, relatively unscathed, I feel like. Um, some of the authors, some not so missing. much. Yeah, there yeah, were some people so, missing, so, so that helps. Yeah, Nick, I feel like what you're saying is because John wasn't there this <laughs> well, time, everything stayed what? a lot calmer. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sorry, am I uh, reigniting the throwdown right now? It could happen. <laughs> we should live stream the throwdowns. 
people would probably actually. I think that would be a popular yeah, episode. Yeah. It's awesome because if you haven't ever heard anyone scream about David Hume <laughs> recently, uh, now's your chance. Yeah, if you want to hear, like, no one thinks they want to hear somebody fight about David Hume and Thomas Reed, um, but it, you do actually want to watch Mr. Gilbert and Mr. Yee yeah. fight about. I think you have a horse this. in that race, right. and then suddenly yeah. you might, and. Suddenly yeah. everyone's talking about, is it Dickens or Don Quixote? <laughs> and then suddenly you're very up in arms and all kinds of crazy things happen. For the record, there's no David Hume on the middle school great books no, list. No, 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 so no, no, no. I think we or avoided Thomas that Street particular yeah, fight. Yes. Um, Both yeah. of those were high school examples. Yeah, yeah. But I did get Anne of Green Gables thrown in. You did get Anne of Green Ooh, Gables nice this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. No, I was going to say, I feel like this is that was one of the first great books throwdowns I've been a part of where there wasn't any yelling like not not like yelling yelling because there's never like yelling yelling there's no no, yeah right there's no because everyone kind of came in and we like everyone was everyone was very um happy with the list for the most part i mean we had anna green gables thrown in there with there were some rotations that were we had some books kind of waiting in the wings get rotated back in so like pilgrim's progress is back on the seventh grade reading list um but otherwise everyone was like no this is this is working so that's a fun byproduct of being an eight-year-old school, I guess. But I think the throwdown is still serves an important role, which is that we're all fresh. We're looking with fresh eyes every year. We're reassessing, uh, making sure that the, the lists that we have are achieving what we hope to achieve when it comes to what students are exposed to um, and what they experience in the classroom. Um, okay, good. So that's the throwdown. Um, it's only teachers. The kids are not involved in that. It takes place. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then the kids get their syllabus, and it has all these books on it. How do we decide what we teach at 6th, 7th, and 8th grade levels? So I think, I mean, I'll just say a, a quick word about kind of how, how we started doing this in the first place and then hear more in detail from um, the three of you who are currently teaching it. But we designed this to be, you know, what we call the intro to great books sequence beca- because at the St. Constantine School, um, if, we, if we just take the high school for a moment, uh, um, we have a relatively, a, a more conventional chronological standard, a, a chronological like great text canon from ninth through 12th grade. Um, it looks a bit like the reading list that um, Mortimer Adler develops in How to Read a Book. Um, it looks, you know, in many ways like the book lists at St. John's and, the, and Tory honors college and, and things like this, right? Programs that um, have had good success in these areas. Um, and so it, for example, starts with Homer in ninth grade. And by the time you finish grade books four, which I'm about to do in a few weeks with my students, you're reading Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and so we're hitting all of these kind of, the texts you would expect in between, um, The Republic, Confessions, um, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, Descartes, you know, um, meditations and so forth. So um, we wanted to take a step back and say, okay, how can we prepare students to start doing that fairly rigorous work by the time they're in ninth grade? And what we came up with was the intro to great books sequence, which doesn't emphasize these texts that they're going to read in ninth through 12th grade. You get some exposure to some of them. You do, for example, uh, we're one of the only junior high programs I know of where you, in fact, read Plato as early as sixth grade, um, but in small doses and over um, a decent period of time where you have a chance to hopefully sit with the material and be led 
um, in encountering it for the first time by an experienced tutor. Um, but that was really kind of the, the driving motivation of developing the class. Like, what do junior hires need? Um, and how can we help them be ready for the kind of classes that we offer here in high school? Um, and in that regard, it's, it's important to remember kind of what Dr. Reynolds says, we're a college that started a high school, that started a middle school, that started an elementary school, et cetera. Um, and so that, that was kind of the corner that we were working from. Yeah, and um, I kind of to that point, we're we're also introduced. Uh, part, so part of the introduction, I think, to to great books is introducing students to uh, a heavier reading load than they might otherwise um, experience elsewhere. So there are times when when middle school students, uh, and this includes sixth grade, where they could be reading one book, a whole book, once a week or once every other week. Um, which I don't know, in my experience of teaching middle school, uh, especially students who kind of come to our school in like seventh or eighth grade, so they've already had some middle school experience elsewhere, it's a little bit of a shock to their system that they have to read a book cover to cover for the first time within such a short amount of time as opposed to you know spending a whole semester on, I don't know, something like Johnny Tremaine or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the, in terms of kind of the level of book that they're reading, they're reading a lot more um, kind of fantasy uh, in, one, in one sense, a lot of fairy tales, uh, but kind of thrown in there as well um, is also things like uh, scripture. So they read some Old Testament books, um, but they also read some Plato um, and kind of are getting introduced to on kind of smaller levels. Uh, texts are that texts that would otherwise seem totally inaccessible to them. Um, so one of the, one of the books that I'm I'm proud to say the eighth graders read every year is Plato's Timaeus, which you know uh, is something you could spend your entire life reading. And very often students read that book and they come into class and they're like, I have no idea what I just read. And I was like, perfect, let's walk through it together. And by the time we get to the end, they understand would be a strong word, um, <laughs> but they they feel like they can interact with the text by the time that we're done. Um, and to say as an eighth grader that you've read Plato's Timaeus is more than uh, many adults I know can say that they've done, um, interacting with Plato at kind of his best in, in one sense as well. So, so introducing students to um, both uh, a faster reading pace, a heavier reading pace, um, but also kind of slowly building them up through the rigor of the text that we expose them to um, is also what's going on in, in the middle school. It seems important, like there's a, with Plato specifically, like, Philosophy cloaked in narrative yeah. um, is accessible to a, a mind that is more strong in narrative understanding. Um, and so our middle school students, I, I like the idea of sort of like we're turning up the heat when it comes to um, when it comes to getting them to understand how to read and process what they're reading at a at a higher pace so that they can take on more challenging works. But those are all almost exclusively narrative-based because, of course, Plato has characters who are talking to each other. It has plenty of philosophical content inside of it, but it's all still inside of this idea of story. Um, in the seventh grade curriculum, you know, if you read The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, oh, there's some history in literature cloaked in narrative. Um, it's still a poetic form, but it um, it's, it's sort of increasing their skills. I think about this with, like, vocabulary, um, context clues in the context of a story where there's a plot and characters you understand. If you're not sure what a word means, we want you to learn the skills that it requires to read a sentence, not be sure about a word, 
You may have to go look it up, but maybe you can form a best guess of what that word means. Um, circle it in your book. We'll put a little question mark. Do your best to figure that out. Um, sometimes stories allow those things to happen a little bit more easily. And so it's, it's kind of developing those soft skills that you need to read a book well, using texts that are a little bit more friendly to the reader because they're written in many cases, not Plato, but um, they're written in, in many cases for a, a slightly younger audience or they're done in a more, I don't know if I would say George MacDonald is written for a younger audience. I feel like you might have to be like 100 years old and the very wisest of all people to fully understand a George MacDonald story. But um, there's an element of simplicity maybe to, some, to a, a many of these texts that means we can say, okay, the skill you're learning right now is simultaneously how to read a book on time and it's hard because there's lots of them, but it's okay they're coming at you fast because they're a little more digestible than some of the books that you're going to read um, in chronological order when you hit the great book cycle in high school. Does that sound right? Yeah, and there's also an element there, you know, I don't know if we've said some concrete examples beyond uh, Plato and, and some of the others that really are great texts that have stood the test of time that we sort of are slowly exposing them to in junior mm -hmm. high, but a lot of the junior high curriculum is made up of books that might not be great books in the same sense, right? They're even books that I deeply love, like the Chronicles of Narnia series and The Hobbit, like one thing you can say about them right now is they have not stood the test of time the way that Plato's Timaeus has, for example. Um, will people be reading those in you know, over 2,000 years? I really don't know. I kind of hope so because of what I feel like I've gained from them. But really, possibly not, and that's okay. I think of uh, something that the Catholic educator John Senior said that you know the great books uh, would find would be able to think of them as trees that would be able to find root in the soil that has been kind of prepared by the thousand good books, right? So there's not a thousand great books necessarily that we could pick from, but there are thousands of good books. And those actually prepare us in so many ways to read better and better books uh, the older that we get. And so even if people won't be reading the Chronicles of Narnia in 1,000, 2,000 years, um, our students benefit tremendously if, if we're thinking, okay, what they need to do is be able to be uh, more adept at recognizing virtue and vice, and they need to recognize beauty um, and see true exemplars of all of these things, um, hopefully in scripture ultimately, but certainly also in uh, Plato and, and others, um, a great place to start doing that is the, the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen or the Brothers Grimm or the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, in each of these, you mentioned the fairy tales and um, Chronicles of Narnia. One great thing about it is that they have um, the heroes or the main characters um, are people that these junior high kids could be if they were courageous enough to be them. Um, they aren't um, Aeneas. They aren't um, Odysseus. They're not these like larger-than-life characters that you can't really aspire to be. Um, the Pevensey children, um, Diggory, Polly, these are people that they could aspire to be if you just had the courage to make good choices. Um, so it's not beyond them in some unattainable way. 
I think about that a lot with the so the seventh grade curriculum at our school. We we also teach encomium and vituperation with writing, um, so praising in praise of virtue and the condemnation of vice um, as it's exhibited in a certain individual. And it is interesting because there are so many of these texts in that class where they are like accessible, sort of uh, either their children or at some point they were a child. Um, the the biblical texts that we read during the seventh grade year to go with that sort of heroes and villains theme, you get to study the life of King David, and then you move into the life of Christ. Um, uh, so the specific biblical texts that we choose for that that show those individuals as young people and then also as adults. And um, we're not teaching biblical exegesis. It's not a theology class. It's not a Bible class. Um, we're working on developing the skills to... Um, read, and this is a good example of a text that they will and should encounter over and over again that will um, delight and confuse and shock and horrify them in turns as they get older and experience the kinds of difficult situations that we see these characters, um, these men and women from the Bible, um, the, the situations that they inhabit. Um, and it's allowing them to um, assess this is I think I say this when, when I talk to the seventh grade parents about this particular school year like it's such an important thing for students to be able to do because they they are assessing everything around them all the time and the people around them all the time but um, being able to say this person was getting it right when they did that but they really messed up over here but that didn't make them the villain of the story, and this person recovered from that, but this person over here did this, they never fixed it, now they're the bad guy, and in the neck, you know, so if, you know, whether that's like looking at someone like Queen Jadis in the Chronicles of Narnia, or Smog, who's like a very easy villain in The Hobbit, where you're just like, well, that's a mean old dragon who kills people and steals stuff, and there's no like, but what if he's a good guy? Like, you don't ever have any sort of confusing feelings about Smog. Um, Going from that to reading like King Saul in First and Second Samuel, where it's not so cut and dry about like, well, this is just a very easily bad guy character and the hero is this person and this is their enemy. And so I should be ready to, you know, condemn everything this person does because they're the bad guy in this story. So allowing there to be um, some dimension uh, is great fodder for discussion because they don't all agree with each other. Um, I find that discussion classes with middle schoolers can be very spirited and heated because of this, because they're so ready to try out ideas because they're trying out like what they think all the time. And they do that out loud and they do it to each other in social situations constantly. So it's good for them to do it in an academic situation where they're like, I'm going to try out saying, I believe that this character has no free will in this book because this happens to them. And then it says this, like Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a great example. A few of the kids always want to be like, there was magic desserts that made him betray his family. And then other kids, usually firstborns, are like, actually, Edmund is horrible and he really is just this bad. He betrays all his siblings and he has to repent. Um, and they're able to have these sort of spirited debates about people without it being them insulting each other, which is a good skill for them to have. <laughs> yeah, they're not only um, figuring out what they think, they're learning how to communicate what they think mm -hmm. and how to listen um, to what their classmates think and wrestle and um, do so in a way that is productive. And they fail. 
sometimes, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they're, they, um, but this is a safe, good place for them to um, try that out, um, to take risks and um, to feel embarrassed or to feel um, like I went too far and I uh, just yelled at my classmate, but um, we can have a conversation about how to, um, how to do it better tomorrow. So. Right, and we, it's, it's good to practice that with them, with all these different kinds of texts that we're talking about. Some of them, uh, as Megan, you were saying, the, the exemplars are easy to identify and easy to sort of look at and say, here's what's good about them or here's what's wrong. But there are, of course, interspersed through all of these texts where it's actually very difficult to say, where did so-and-so go wrong? Um, I don't know, we really need to talk about that. And making attempt after attempt in discussion to articulate that is really healthy for them and ultimately, we hope, helps them see themselves and one another more clearly. Um, Because as you said, they're kind of having a conversation about virtue and vice, but in a way that's not they're not immediately necessarily being asked to think about themselves, but they're forming a more clear idea of what justice is. And that should help them, um, as we keep moving forward, be able to see that more clearly in their own life. We hope. Yeah. Um, we should talk a little bit about the mimetic writing that they do mm-hmm. um, in the middle school. Does anybody want to talk about what mimetic writing assignments we do. I can talk about it for seventh grade, but that's what I teach. So that's why I know about it. Well, go for it. Uh, why don't you start there and then okay. we'll think about um, imitation Yeah, in so, so um, imitation is, um, is a really important skill. It's a great creative outlet. Um, there's always some students who that's their natural proclivity, and there's always some students who would rather have their teeth pulled out. Um, and so uh, it's a great thing to bring into the classroom. Um, in, uh, in my middle school, in the middle school class, at the grade level that I teach in seventh grade, um, we've been doing some uh, mimetic ethopoeia, which is just taking on the character of somebody else and then from their perspective wrestling with a decision that that person had to make. Um, so you kind of like freeze time and pretend you're, uh, I was talking about the line of the witch's wardrobe earlier, so pretend you're Edmund when the witch asks him to bring his siblings to her uh, when the next time they come back to Narnia. And you just sort of hit pause and you become Edmund and you wrestle with yourself. Um, knowing what his outcome is. His decision was to choose to do that thing, or it could be like the moment he decides to lie to his siblings and say that he hadn't actually been to Narnia and that Lucy is making things up. Um, so that you can try to empathetically uh, under, you know, sort of creatively explore why he made those decisions, but also you, know, you imitate the style of the author while you're doing that, so it's not like suddenly Edmund is like a Shakespearean character, and he's, you know, it sounds like a monologue from 400 years ago. Um, it should be you know, imitating the style of the author who wrote it, um, but allowing them to sort of empathetically access the character and do some creative work. So the thing I like about that especially is, be, is oh, you know, I brought a 15-month-old to a podcast recording. I don't know what I was expecting. 
you can only put your spoons into cups in a corner over and over again for so long before you get bored. So now we're taking socks on and off. But uh, anyway, so uh, it's a great time to develop empathy when you're in middle school. Um, without it, life gets harder. So um, allowing yourself to put yourself into another person's position, consider things as they would consider them based on their experiences, um, acknowledges that people make difficult choices. It's very easy to look at decisions that characters make. I think about folks in the Bible, like David and Bathsheba. And it's very easy for people to be like, oh, King David, what on earth? That was so stupid. Why would you choose to do that? Um, but if you sat down and did an Ethipoi exercise about it, you might be like, oh, no. I now understand I shouldn't be so you know, dismissive of the difficult position that you were put in there. Um, not because you're trying to make good and evil seem like a big fat gray area, like, well, I don't know, I just did what I thought was best and that's fine. Um, it's because it allows you to access kind of what you're talking about, about if you know what virtue and vice are, but you don't notice when you're like on a path of decision making that's leading you towards something that's actually bad, um, you can be in trouble. So it's kind of honing those skills, but using other people's mistakes. My dad, who was full of hilarious wisdom like this, used to always say to me, it's good to learn from your mistakes, but it's better to learn from other people's mistakes. And so, yes, I would rather have our students learn not to betray their siblings from Edmund Pevensey rather than learning it from their own firsthand negative experiences of betraying their siblings <laughs> in real life. So. Right, and, and this is where, I'm sorry, this isn't strictly about the writing assignment. It actually goes back a bit to why we would have them read Plato, but uh, very much kind of related to what you were just saying, th this is why we have them read something like the dialogue, the Crito, um, in seventh grade. They, you know, they read the, the sequence from um, Euthyphro to Phaedo, um, so essentially the last days of Socrates and um, the Apology, you know, his, his trial, Crito, um, in, in which he's visited in prison, uh, Socrates is visited in prison by his friend Crito, and Crito comes to him and essentially says, "Look, they they convicted you. The you know the Athenians convicted you because they want you to leave, and your friends will help you. I've got money. Other people will help too. We can send you away." And Socrates has to decide and explain to his friend why he's choosing to stick to his guns and stay in Athens and die even though he could live, he could maintain his, his earthly life if he's just willing to leave Athens. And you know, there's reason in the text to think he could even do that with his family. Like, and, and so this is odd for the students, you know, these seventh graders, they are being asked to step into Socrates' position. They find Crito very sympathetic. Um, they don't understand. It, it, I'm, you know, anecdotally, they don't see immediately why Socrates wouldn't just take his family and leave if it means he could live, right? But Socrates, of course, says that it's much easier to flee death than wickedness. And he thinks that there's something deeply important about having to stay in Athens. And this is where it kind of touches what you were saying, Megan, about not only the, the distinguishing between virtue and vice and questions of justice and goodness here, but also compassion and sympathy and sort of being able to relate to both characters in that moment. And in my experience, even though, yes, like Nick, you were saying, they come in saying, I didn't understand a word I read. But once we start talking about what the circumstances are and what the closely reading together what the characters are saying to each other, this is very much an understandable conversation for them. Mm -hmm. But at such 
high stakes and so far removed from their own experience and their own proclivities, it's really healthy, I think, to, to be confronted with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, um, I was just thinking while you guys were talking that this idea of mimesis or mimetic writing in general, like this is, there's a long tradition of, of this um, method as, as a way of teaching students how to write. Um, uh, you, you, I mean, you can go all the way back to the Middle Ages and find uh, handbooks on rhetoric and teaching how to write, and they're all basically saying, write a story like Ovid. Um, <laughs> you know, think, things along those lines. And, and uh, two, two of my favorite um, uh, mimesis assignments that I give to eighth grade students in the spring, one is uh, basically to write some occasional poetry. Uh, so we read The Lord of the Rings um, at the beginning of the spring semester, and then we get to the part where uh, Aragorn, Legolas, well, Gimli's there too, but Gimli doesn't do it, uh, basically uh, write spontaneous uh, poetry in honor of Boromir's uh, death. Spoiler alert. Um, oh man. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't have to read it now, see? Yeah, it just saved you a thousand oh, pages. Oh, good, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, but but we, we kind of talk about like what's going on there in that scene, and then I explain to them that this is a form of occasional poetry, and then I assign them to go write their own occasional poetry for something that you know maybe has gone on in their life. Um, and then the other one that I really like that's kind of more along the lines of what you were talking about, Megan, is uh, we read the screw tape letters and then I assign them a Mises assignment where they have to write a letter uh, as, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, screw tapes Wormwood? nephew. Wormwood. Wormwood. Yes, I was thinking Wormtongue. Wormtongue is always, yes, uh, the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings yeah. in my head. Um, yeah, so they have to, as Wormwood, write a letter basically defending why they lost their patient um, to screw tape. Uh, and this, this I think, does like multiple different things. One, one is that it, it kind of shakes them out of uh, what might otherwise be a really narrow, kind of rigid sort of perspective of writing. Like writing is only one thing, especially I think in an academic setting. You know, kids will get that five paragraph essay locked into their minds in a way that they like don't feel like they can write in any other way. Um, what can we do to kill that? What can we do? <laughs> Maybe we should have another podcast about that. Maybe. Uh, what do you mean, um, guys? Ovid wrote so many five-paragraph essays. That yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's That's every it's every great it. author's favorite form of writing. So many five-paragraph essays yeah. have lasted into you know into modern times. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry to all of the like people <laughs> I, out there. Who I say that as someone who, if you if you asked me to if you asked schools. me to write a five-paragraph essay right now, I would do it with pleasure because I actually love nailing a five-paragraph essay. Yes, it does so. feel good. Good, yes, you know. feels real good, um, which is the problem. Uh, <laughs> but but no, I, I think the other thing too, kind of back to what I was saying earlier about like sometimes they come to class and they say like I don't understand a word that I read. Um, this sort of creative engagement with the text through uh, mimesis assignments um, is is another way of communicating to them in the same way that I think discussion does this as like no this is how you read a text I think I think too often students come to this come to the books that we read um, as a like well I read every word on every page turned every page got to the end ta-da I read it um, and I think part of what we're doing in middle school is kind of helping them realize that no reading means you're like actively engaging with your mind the ideas and not just your mind but you're also also your heart because you might find that you're crying in different parts of the book um uh and and trying to draw out as much as you can from 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 those books um which then i think kind of does that does that other move as well of uh helping them 
to kind of go back and reread books that they maybe think they have read before and they understand, and then they go back and they read it kind of with these new sets of skills and this new kind of um, mode of perception and understanding what it means to read, and they get that much more out of it um, mm -hmm. in the end. Yeah, it's almost like sometimes occasionally assigning things that allow people to understand they're out of their depth allows them to understand like you're going to get better at this but the book is still deep like you have yeah. not you're right you have not plumbed the depths of this text yeah and, and maybe you, you yeah and maybe you understand the seventh graders amount of it and right. there's more that you can understand next time but you're not ever going to be like i got it that whole book right. i understood all of it i had this great sorry i had this great uh, moment just like last last week this week time is meaningless um <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the eighth graders, because we're reading Paralandra right now, and we were looking at the mm. scene where um, uh, the unman, Weston, is tempting uh, the green lady. And then I kind of brought out the, the passage from Genesis 3 where the serpent is tempting Eve. And so we kind of did a close read of Genesis 3. And like halfway through our just close read and discussion of Genesis 3 and comparing it to Paralandra, like a bunch of the students were going, I didn't know this was in the Bible. Like, I didn't know it was so deep and rich. And like, you know, they didn't use those words exactly. They were just kind of mind blown that there was more going on in Genesis 3 than just the Satan, uh, you know, the Satan figure, ser the serpent um, being tricksy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, thank you all very much. We, of course, more to talk about, um, but this is a good sort of introductory picture to what we do with, with our middle schoolers at St. Constantine and why. So thank you all very much. Thank you for visiting Constantinople. Constantinople is a podcast of Constantine Classical. To learn more about St. Constantine schools nationwide, St. Constantine College, and our annual vision conference in downtown Houston, please visit stconstantine.org.